Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. Have you read Don't Touch That Dial? Or have you read One Nation Under Television? Those are the the authoritative histories, the one of radio, the other of television, American radio, American television. And they are both by an old friend of ours, J. Fred MacDonald, who, in my judgment and the judgment of many others, is our leading historian of the broadcast media. Why do I tell you all of this? Because, of course, Fred is our guest tonight, and as he has been many times before. And tonight we're doing an overview of how radio shaped American character, American culture, uh, during those crucial decades when it was the only broadcast medium, namely the 1920s, 30s, and into the 40s and the war years. Television didn't really become a presence in our lives until after World War II. Loads of clips, all provided by Fred, and we'll get right into it after, we'll get right into it with, of all people, Lindbergh, uh, coming back to the United States and being greeted by <laughs> I'm almost tempted to say Hebert Hoover. No, Hubert Hever, which was the great slip of uh, Harry Von Zell when he, when he, what are you trying to tell me? Oh, it's Coolidge who greets him. We hear Herbert Hoover later on, to be sure. Uh, he's greeted by President Coolidge in 1927. Uh, and Hoover comes on a bit later. <clears throat> uh, Fred and I have been uh, playing these games for years, and thus uh, the informal uh, badinage even now, before we go to the update on the evening's news. For that, to the WGN Newsroom and Kim Gordon. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. Our guest tonight, Fred McDonald, as I've already indicated, is an old, old friend of this program and of the host of this program. He's been here many times before. He is an historian, an historian who uh, fills a post, professor of history at Northern Illinois University for many years, uh, took early retirement so he could go full-time into his uh, particular historical research on and development of a great file of programs uh, drawn from American radio and television, uh, other things in that vast collection as well, which for a while was a major business and now is all uh, given over to the <coughs> Library of Congress. Uh, you will agree with me, I'm sure, that when it comes to history generally, and history is about, among other, basically social change, that we can identify a number of base movers of social change. One is war. Another is a disease. Uh, yet another is uh, uh, large demographic population shifts. And yet another is technology. Technologies transform societies. And surely it is your view that the coming of radio was transformative for American society. Oh, absolutely. It reminds me of the uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, where mm -hmm. all these chimps are running around uncivilized. Yes. And right in the middle is this geometric design, this pattern, this mathematical, mathematically precise thing. And that will change those monkeys into what we are today, is what it seems to be saying. But indeed, technology... Uh, it's particularly electrically circuited technology in the 20th century uh, has done a, a, a very formative job in reshaping the way we are, the way we think, the way we communicate. And we're going to sample another of a uh, number of gleanings, uh, your gleanings, from the history of radio, uh, live programs, that is, once live programs, now on tape. And we're going to listen to some that uh, illustrate that thesis in action. And we start with... 
this is the earliest in terms of time, I believe, going back to 1927. None other than Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic. It was a big heroic event. It was a big international competition to do it. And he did it in, what, May of 1927. And if it, only been, if it had only been uh, a newsreel, film in the theater newsreel world, he would have been famous, but not as much as radio could suck everybody into it immediately. So he you became could, a great national figure, uh, so much so that he tried to stop our entry into World War II. He was a, one the, the great public presence for the so-called America First movement. Uh, and some suggest the American Bund as well, but that's a the German American <laughs> Bund. Well, he was a, a great admirer of Hermann Göring and the he Luftwaffe. Was. Later on, he rather compromised himself with the Nazis. Yes, and uh, you know he 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 shouldn't have done that. But, but here we are in 1927. What's the occasion? Uh, he is now coming back to Washington D.C. Uh, after he's been in France. He's been com- brought back on a military vessel. He is coming off. Uh, he is being. Uh, uh, walking down the gangplank, the NBC newsman, and, and NBC is not even a year old at this point, is saying, here he comes, it's Lindbergh, and the crowd is yelling. Then we'll hear Coolidge, a little bit of Coolidge, introducing him, the president. They're going to give him the Distinguished Flying Cross for his Distinguished Flying. And uh, then we hear a little bit of him speaking. Ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience, Mr. Graham Magnum is speaking from the Navy Yard. Washington, D.C. moment ago, the last turn of the propellers of the Memphis brought her close into the dock. The entire white uniformed crew of the Memphis is now lined up at attention along the side nearest the dock, awaiting Lindbergh. Lindbergh is coming down the gangplank. He comes forward. Unassuming, quiet, a little droop to his shoulders. He's tired out. Very serious and awfully nice. On the morning just three weeks ago yesterday, this wholesome, earnest, fearless, courageous product of America rose into the air from Long Island on a monoplane christened the spirit of St. Louis in honor of his home and his supporters. It was no haphazard adventure. After months of most careful preparation, supported by a valiant character, driven by an unconquerable will, and inspired by the imagination and the spirit of his Viking ancestors, this reserve officer set wing across the dangerous stretches of the North Atlantic. He was alone. His destination was Paris. Thirty-three hours and thirty minutes later, in the evening of the second day, he landed at his destination on the French flying field of La Bourget. He had traveled 3,600 miles and established a new and remarkable record. On the evening of the 21st of May last, I arrived at Le Bourget, Paris. During the week I spent in France, the day in Belgium, 
on the short period in London and England, the people of France and the people of Europe requested that I bring back to the people of America one message from the people of France and the people of Europe. At every gathering, at every meeting I attended, were the same words. You have seen the affection of the people of France for the people of America demonstrated to you. Fascinating material. I've never heard Coolidge before. That was Coolidge oh, in the middle. Yes. Well, he had that very nasal quality to his voice, and people at the time thought, because of the nature of radio uh, broadcasting, that nasality really helped him in communicating when he ran for office. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, you could hear it there. We could cut glass with it. But when we talk, as you do, uh, about building a national community, the provision of central figures who take on symbolic significance and are heroes for all the country, that's made much more likely, much more readily possible by radio itself. Uh, Absolutely. But can you imagine uh, you've just bought a radio and you can hear you're in Denver. You're in Seattle. You're somewhere. And here, this is happening right now in Washington, D.C., this greatest man of the 20th century, and a lot of people still hold him in great respect for what he did. He took technology to the next level. He was like the astronauts of the 1920s. And here it is live on radio, and then you grow to expect it, and the people in the industry grow to know that, and they keep throwing all these events at you. Another way in which radio clearly changed our culture, changed our national community, is to make it a national political community, particularly uh, as organized around the president, the president on radio. And when we return from something else that's been a constant in American radio, namely commercials, uh, right after that, we'll hear a few American presidents, uh, directly back to J. Fred McDonald and to, um, among others, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and at last Herbert Hoover, whom I was getting around with before. Uh, we return after this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return to uh, J. Fred McDonald and the many, many voices he's brought along with him tonight. Uh, Fred has been professor of history at Northeastern Illinois University and ran his own vast broadcasting and film archive and uh, is really the leading historian of American radio. I think that's generally understood. So we're going on now to um, the presidential level. You would agree with me that the presidency was altered, was changed by the coming of radio. Oh, I really think it was. Uh, it be- He becomes much more important uh, today. I mean, Everything revolves around the president. I mean, he's got to make jobs. He's got to do all these things. He's such a central Mm -hmm. character. You'd think we'd had a dictatorship instead of a balance of power with a Congress and a judiciary and Mm -hmm. and an executive. But uh, the personality, the driving of personality is Mm -hmm. such an important marketing mechanism for the radio or the television world. And it also then uh, takes on a life of its own. Was Coolidge the very first American president to be heard on the air? Uh, or did, did I think Harding, Harding had some, but it, with any regularity, the first president to do, on the air was Herbert Hoover. To be sure. And his wife, Lou 
uh, Hoover actually had her own radio show before uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had hers. I was so eager to kind of recall the first great radio blooper when Harry Bunzel introduced Herbert Hoover live as President Hubert Herber, that or something like that, Hubert Heber. <laughs> yeah, Hubert Heber. Uh, that I even watched it up as, <laughs> on my pre-intro to the program. But here he is. Shall I say President Hubert Heber? Okay. My fellow citizens, this broadcast tonight marks the beginning of the mobilization of the whole nation for a great undertaking to provide security for those of our citizens and their families who, through no fault of their own, face unemployment and privation during the coming winter. Its success depends upon the sympathetic and generous action of every man and woman in our country. No one with a spark of human sympathy can contemplate unmoved the possibilities of suffering that can crush many of our unfortunate fellow Americans if we shall fail them. This depression has deepened by events from abroad which are beyond the control of either of our citizens or our government. Although it is but a passing incident in our national life, we must meet the consequences in unemployment which arise from it with that completeness of effort and of courage and spirit for which citizenship in this nation always has and always must stand. As an important part of our plans for national unity of action in this emergency, I have created a great national organization under the leadership of Mr. Walter Gifford to cooperate with the governors, the state, and the local agencies, and with the many national organizations of business, of labor, and of welfare, with the churches, and our, our fraternal and patriotic societies, so that the countless streams of human helpfulness which have been the mainstay of our country in all emergencies may be directed wisely and effectively. Over a thousand towns and cities have uh, A fade, because we want to go quickly now, to Roosevelt. That's Hoover in 1931. Of course, he loses the next election uh, to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who is riding on uh, the general crisis of the Depression, which persists, and he's got a plan, and that and the country believes he's got a plan, and here he, and he became the great radio presence. Now he had actually done that; he had done these little fireside chat type things when he was governor of New York, of New York State. So he yeah. was used to it, and he's a much better speaker on radio than Hoover. Well, his fireside chat became a basic part of the American political culture for the <clears throat> for all of his three terms and on into his fourth. Yeah, I think he he did about twenty four of them over the years. They weren't regular, but they were irregular, and they were. Uh, and the notion that it's a fireside chat, we come in closely, and we're sitting with him at the fireplace, so to speak. This is the first one. The date nineteen what what March twelfth, nineteen thirty three. Nineteen They had a later uh, inauguration date in those days. The president mm-hmm. wasn't inaugurated in January. Was he inaugurated in March? Actually, he was. He would be. He wasn't even uh, in office. You're right. At this point, but he's still oh, taking. Still, it's he's still taking. His uh, he's taking these emergency actions now. Here he is. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. To talk with the comparatively few who understand the mechanics of banking, but more particularly with the overwhelming majority of you who use banks for the making of deposits and the drawing of checks. 
I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be. I recognize that the many proclamations from state capitals and from Washington, the legislation, the treasury regulations, and so forth, couched for the most part in banking and legal terms, ought to be explained for the benefit of the average citizen. I owe this in particular because of the fortitude and the good temper which everybody has, with which everybody has accepted the inconvenience and the hardships of the banking holiday. And I know that when you understand what we in Washington have been about, I shall continue to have your cooperation as fully as I have had your sympathy and your help during the past week. Um, that voice really made it. That presence really made it. There's, that, the, there's a quality of patrician self-assurance there, which really meant a great deal to the country at a time when everybody was very, very worried and many were just laid low. And uh, he had uh, the votes in Congress to get yeah. past uh, mm-hmm. uh, legislation that would follow up and follow through with what he was talking about here. And he becomes this almost father mm-hmm. figure and perhaps the greatest president, certainly the greatest president in radio at that point. The other way that radio really works to unify and transform the national community is, of course, that it now becomes a great source of news. It's hard to remember. We still have newscasts, to be sure. We even have one or two news stations in a local radio. But in those days, everybody was tuned to the radio to get the news. Not merely the daily newscast, but radio commentators giving you interpretations of the news. From Constantly. from Europe. From Europe and uh, interpreting the war. But uh, also sports news, the explode. Well, you'll hear yeah. a lot of them in this little montage. We've got a montage that you put together. Here it is. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime, Bob Trout reporting. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. That's the word we've just received from the White House in Washington. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. Keep it from... It burst into flames. It burst into flames and it's falling. It's crashing. Watch it. 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 Get this started. Get this started. It's rising. And it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's... There's racing. Plenty... Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. It, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. And the famous crashing to the ground. Not quite to the mooring mass. Oh, the humanity and all the... We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air. President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. And left to the head, a left to the jaw, a right to the head, and Donovan is watching carefully. Lewis measures him, right to the body, a left up to the jaw, and Schmeling is down. The count is five, five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Max Schmeling is beaten in one round. The program originally scheduled for this time will not be heard. From Munich, Germany, the Mutual Network presents a commentary by the renowned woman correspondent, Sigrid Schultz. We take you now to Munich. This is Sigrid Schultz, 
the Berlin correspondent of the Chicago Tribune, speaking to you from Munich. I have just finished a tour of the international headquarters of Europe's four great powers in the Bavarian capital tonight. I had hoped this would enable me to give you a clear-cut picture of the international situation as it presents itself tonight. It is not possible to do so because the historical conference is still on. This is Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid siren. I'm standing here just on the steps of St. Martin's in the Fields. A searchlight just burst into action off in the distance. One single beam sweeping the sky above me now. People are walking along quite quietly. We're just at the entrance of an air raid shelter here, and I must move this cable over just a bit so people can walk in. I can see just straight away in front of me Lord Nelson on top of that big column. There's another searchlight just square behind Nelson's statue. Here comes one of those big red buses around the corner. Double-deckers they are. Fascinating montage you put together there. And I recognize, of course, Bob Trout, who started it. Uh, and uh, the man who announced the Louis Schmelling fight was Clem McCarthy, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ed Morrow, of course, was Ed Morrow. And Herb Morrison was the man who uh, tracked the... Oh, the uh, humanity. The, oh, the humanity and the the explosion uh, and the, the burning of the Hindenburg. But who was that woman? Sigrid Schultz, is the, she said, the Berlin correspondent. So she said, but I've never heard her name before. The, yeah, she was a, a, a regular commentator on, on radio. And so one when of she the was in this women. country, she had her own, an office in this building, undoubtedly. No doubt, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's one of the very few women, with Dorothy Thompson, I think, uh, who were formidable during the war. Back in 1938, I think she said that. Or was it, thir- it was before the war, that broadcast. Right, that was a Munich yeah. conference. Oh, that's what it was, of course. Uh, we are due for an update on the news, and you won't hear anything equivalent to the Munich conference or to the crash of the Hindenburg, but interesting things are happening all the same. <clears throat> and some terrible things are happening in this city, as a matter of fact. To the WGN newsroom and Paula Cooper. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. My guest tonight is uh, Fred uh, who is a very, very old friend, uh, and we are... That's Fred McDonald, in case you didn't catch the full name. Did you know that the clan McDonald is uh, the largest clan or something, and they're d- celebrating it worldwide right now? Hootsman. Uh, yes. We're, we're, I didn't know they're celebrating it, but uh, I celebrate it every day. What did you, what's the word <laughs> you just said? Hootsman. Which, may, which stands uh, for? The, the hello man, I guess. Ah, in Gaelic, yeah. in, in Scotch Gaelic. In, in cliche, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I know what the story was. They've just determined that all real McDonald's, Mac means of, you're, you're of the clan McDonald, uh, of the <clears throat> clan Donald, that all uh, Donalds uh, do in fact have some kind <clears throat> of um, genetic tracer which goes back to the original founder of the clan. To Donald himself. Yeah. The Donald. The Donald. You are, you are <laughs> related to the Donald. The Donald. That's not Donald Trump either, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. 
Now, we're going to talk about how radio helped to mold and to transform the American national culture. What do you have in mind? Well, we've been talking about political culture, but what about just culture in general? And and this is a very interesting uh, phenomenon because it Uh introduces all sorts of new ideas into people's minds, things they've never done before. And I want to look at the uh, evolution of jazz over about a 20-year period to give you an idea. Jazz comes out of Storyville, out of New Orleans in the 1890s. It's big brass bands playing loud music. It comes up to Chicago and is refined. The black music Musicians from New Orleans meet a lot of white musicians up around here, Bud Freeman, Big Spiderbeck, and they kind of mellow it down, bring the white culture into it. I can't resist it. interrupting you to tell you that Bud Freeman was twice on this radio program. At the end of his career, he came back to Chicago and was here for the last five years of his life. Well, he was the... Uh, uncle of one of my grad students and she got me a personal interview with uncle bud oh yeah and i did a videotape interview with him and uh it was delightful it's now at the library of congress fascinating guy and uh but uh so what we see in this first clip is the uh carlton coon joe sanders nighthawk orchestra which starts in they're white guys. They're playing this kind of razzmatazz jazz. It's 1926. They're playing out of uh, Kansas City, and they're fairly popular. But in the winter of 26, they come to Chicago, and they put them on WGN, and they become regular broadcasters in the winter months out of uh, Chicago. And that makes them national. When you come out of WGN, you're national. You were, come they, out of, were they playing in a nightclub at, which, and carried on WGN or were they yes. in WGN studios? No, they played in a nightclub and yeah. they, uh, uh, it's the uh, Coon Sanders Nighthawk Orchestra. And this is the WGN broadcast. Yeah, this is a good example of the early form of jazz. Necessary fade. We've got a good deal of uh, other jazz to play. But who is that singer? That's Joe Sanders of the Coon Sanders uh-huh. Nighthawk Orchestra. And radio is now making jazz with performers like this, making it inter- a national phenomenon. You don't have to go to a nightclub. You can dance to it at home, listening to these guys on the radio regularly, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, six nights a week. By 1940, this early razzmatazz jazz has taken on a, a much 
more uh, silky performance quality. It is much more danceable. Some call it not even jazz anymore. They call it dance music. Or they call it swing. Or they absolutely did. They were swingers. They swung like a gate. Yeah. That's why they call them alligators or gators, because they swung like a gate. And here we have 1940, an, an example of the every night of the week live band remote. You'd be mad to take the top rock and roll acts today, and every night of the week they're on TV free. It would never happen. But it happened in radio as this kind of music gains popularity. It's 1940, Harry James in a band remote in New Jersey. The nation's number one trumpeter, Harry James, and his orchestra. introduced Dick Haynes, but we haven't given him a chance to sing. <laughs> we have to fade. Well, he's not singing a swing song anyway. Uh, but we're going now to a montage that you put together. No, no, we're going to go next to the the unexpected. The point is, is that when you do something in the culture, you never know how it will be applied. We take that jazz, we take the swing era, and in 1943, this is the Coca-Cola Victory Spotlight of Bands. Uh-huh. Coca-Cola would sponsor live band remotes every night of the week. And here is that same music. Now it is this fantastic morale booster for the war effort. Now it's the victory spotlight, so it's focused on uh, uh, serenading uh, the, the country, but more particularly the fighters. The exactly, warriors. from military bases all over yeah. the country. And now it becomes a weapon of war. What started out as just, you know, razzmatazz mm-hmm. is now in the culture, and it can, it, it can be used in a, in a totally unexpected way. And we're hearing a particular band, namely Tommy Dorsey. There's assembly for you fighting men of the United Nations. The Special Service Division presents a rebroadcast of the Victory Parade of Spotlight Bands. The Coca-Cola Company sends the greatest bands in the land to entertain the soldiers, the sailors, the Marines, the Coast Guardsmen, and war workers. Tonight we're at Fresno, California, playing for the officers and men of Basic Training Center Number 8 of the United States Army Air Force's Technical Training Command. Presenting in person and in the spotlight, Tommy Dawson! <laughs> 
Thank you, men, and hello, neighbors. This is Tommy Dorsey. On the bulletin board here at Fresno, it says, Tonight, the victory plate of Spotlight Bands with Tommy Dorsey. Well, they've got the right program, they've got the right guy. And then down at the bottom, it says, Playing America's favorite music for America's favorite son, which also means they've got the right idea. That's what it says on the outside, and here's what it sounds like on the inside. The first spot in tonight's spotlight calls for the whole band to hitch a ride on March of the Toys. And we are back. Um, that was a, something classical adapted to the form of a swing band, but I don't know quite what that theme was. Uh, but I recognize that it's part of the classical repertoire. Oh, that was one of the points of criticism of swing music when they took classical music, like Freddie Martin would take Tchaikovsky and use it as his theme song. This was almost, you know, a sacrilege yeah, to these yeah. purists. But maybe one of your listeners can call up with that. Probably so. And uh, we will continue. We're going next to the making of great entertainment personalities, apart from band leaders, uh, over the great vehicle of radio. All of that to follow as we, right after we pause for these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Uh, and directly back to Fred McDonald. And <clears throat> when it comes to radio before television really took over, something that was outstanding were the comics, as well as, to be sure, the, dr- the drama shows. But the comics became a major uh, operation in American radio. They were, they were essentially the content of nighttime radio on the networks, weren't they? They were the dominant genre. Yeah. Uh, and they, in the Depression, they were called the gloom chasers. Were they? Because people could, you know, laugh away at least for mm. a half hour. And if you get enough, a string of these half-hour shows, you could do the whole night of laughter. And um, they continued when uh, good times came back, prosperity in the 50s. An early one was Eddie Cantor, am I right? Eddie Cantor is... One of the first. Uh, Joe Penner. Do you remember that name? Joe Penner. Yeah. Who else shows up? Who else shows up? You've got Jack Pearl. You've got Burns and Allen. You've got the Marx Brothers. They didn't do very well on mm-hmm. radio. You've got Jack Benny. Who did very well on radio. Uh, and, yeah, and Fred Allen, the great Fred Allen. And Fred Allen. Who was my favorite, actually. Well, he always had a more intellectual bent to <laughs> he him. He did. He and, did write it. Herman yeah. Walk was one of his writers. Yeah. So he had, he had some uh, people of, uh, of distinction. So we're sampling that, and we're sampling it with uh, three other people, one of them being, of all, pe- of all <clears throat> names, and she's not a comic, Judy Garland. Well, I want to talk about the fact that this new medium begins to introduce its own talent, and you start finding people who will leave an indelible mark on our psychology, on our culture, on our history. And, and, and we'll, we'll start, though, with, not, with a Red Skelton. Here's a guy from Vincent, Indiana, who does a lot of uh, shtick in nightclubs and everything, and they're giving him his chance on radio. It's 19, August of 1937 on Rudy Valley's uh, Fleischmann Hour, the uh, palace... Uh, uh, theater of radio, it was called, because it was uh, this vaudeville. There were a few such shows which had vaudeville acts or a whole series of acts, usually with some genial host, in this case, Rudy Valley, who uh, came from Yale 
and uh, had a little band that he first put together at Yale University. But he's famous for the main Stein song, uh, singing the... It's not the main Stein. Oh, but he's also famous for the Yale... Oh, the uh, Whiffenpoof, yes. The, Whiff- the Whiffenpoof song, both of which were in his repertoire. And I bet you could sing that from your days well, at Yale. Well, I was a professor at Yale. I remember it well, yeah. <laughs> you have to sing it to get From the, the tables down to at Maurice to the place where Louis dwells, etc., yeah. <laughs> but so we start with... Uh, with Judy, Gar- no, with uh, Skelton, rather. Yes. Later we hear Ju- the very young Judy Garland. She's only 13, I think. And this may be her first radio appearance. But here's Red Skelton, whom I never found particularly funny, but found just a touch embarrassing because he was so broad. But uh, lots of people liked him. And he should have, undoubtedly, was a very nice guy. Red is an Indiana boy who has been making good in a big way all over what's left of the variety circuits. Among variety performers these days, he's unique in that he's always working. He holds the post-depression record. 55 weeks' work out of 57 in the larger key cities. He's young, likable, red-headed, ambitious, and fellow citizens, he's going places. We want you to meet Red Skelton. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much, Rudy. Now, this is my second time in New York, uh, and it's my first time on a big program. I told all the folks back home that I would tell them about New York, so I went on a little sightseeing tour today. I like the buildings here in New York. They're all big. We have several skywiper, uh, skyscrapers in, uh, Vin- <laughs> in Vincennes, but they're nothing compared to here. This Radio City building, for instance. Now, our Mer- American National Bank building is six stories high. That's including the basement. But this uh, Radio City building, I'm th- it's really big. I was talking to the doorman a few minutes ago, and he says, You know, this afternoon a fella jumped off the top of this place. I said, Did he get hurt? He says, Well, we don't know yet. He doesn't land till tomorrow. <laughs> and the... the, the, the uh, I like the elevators here in Radio City. Eight stories. They bring you up in two seconds. <laughs> sure does Rockefeller Center. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I, I like uh, Rudy and I were having breakfast together this morning in a very high class restaurant, Joe's place. It's very reasonable. In fact, you can eat dirt cheap. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kidding. I don't know. But there were a lot of people sitting around this morning in the restaurant with donuts and coffee, and they were dunking. Uh, Rudy, would you mind if I dunked a few donuts here tonight? Certainly not. Make yourself right at home. Well, could I have some donuts and coffee? Donuts and coffee coming up. Here you are, Red. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's what I call service. Now, when dunking, never remove your hat because it comes in handy later on. Now, the next thing you do is find the temperature of your coffee. <laughs> coffee looks like something they rang out of a mop. <laughs> Coffee should be at a certain temperature when used for dunking. If it's too hot, the donut will become soggy before you can eat it. <laughs> so you use the index finger as a thermometer. <laughs> uh, well, that was a famous routine of his. I saw him do it in, in um, some movie. And probably he did it on the stage routinely when he was doing vaudeville and appearing. I saw him once, in fact, uh, on stage at the Paramount Theater in New York. Uh, and he was... Uh, alongside some famous band. It may have been Benny Goodman. Uh, Goodman used to tour... Well, all of these bands used to tour some of the big uh, theatrical venues mm-hmm. as well as do radio. And uh, there, I think I saw him do the the donut routine on the stage of the New York Paramount. You're but, becoming a fan. <laughs> well, he was all right. He was a nice fella. But um, 
I noticed something, and I pointed it out to you while we were listening to it, when he mentions going up to eight floors on the elevator. They are in the studio known as 8H in Rockefeller Center, in the RCA building at Rockefeller Center, which is the location for all sorts of programs, including the NBC Symphony conducted by Arturo Toscanini. And I, if I remember correctly, they do Saturday Night Live from the same studio. No, that I didn't know, but it doesn't surprise me. It's still there and functioning. Yeah. Uh, next up is Judy Garland, the very young Judy Garland. Uh, again, a new talent. Uh, and, and this is interesting because she comes in for a screen test at MGM, and she's this, this little girl who had been at the Chicago Fair with her family uh, uh, and uh, performing. Uh, and now she's getting her break. I think, as you said, she's about 13 years old. And they bring her over to the Shell Chateau, which was a variety show hosted here by Wallace Beery and uh, sponsored by Shell Gasoline. And he is so effusive when he introduces, uh-huh. like he's introducing his daughter. And she's got, she's one of these little tykes with an adult woman's voice. Now for the surprise of the evening. This is really so doggone good that I can hardly believe it myself. This is the opportunity spot of the show. One portion of the show that we donate each week to someone which we feel has exceptional ability and we want to help along. We have a girl here whom I think is going to be the sensation of pictures. She's only 12 years old and... I take great pleasure in presenting to you Judy Garland. Wait until you hear her. Twelve years old. Come on, Judy. Come on. There you are. You're Judy if you're scared. You hang right on to me, honey. I'm right with you. Now, come on. We'll talk a minute. Now, where did you learn to sing? My mother taught me. Your ma, huh? Never had any regular music lessons at all, huh? Well, I did take some piano lessons. Well, can you play pretty good? Oh, I don't know. Mom says I play pretty well. Mm, well, of course, Mom would. All right, Judy, now tell me this. Now, what do you want to do when you grow up to be a great big girl, huh? I want to be a singer, Mr. Berry. And I'd like to act, too. Well, you'll do it, Judy. Don't worry. Now, I'll tell you. You just stand here and sing that piece you sang for me the other day and show these folks what a singer you are. Now, go right to it. And if you need me, I'll be standing right there. You <laughs> Step right on it. Go ahead, Judy. Of a million lives Broadway Street of a million sides Broadway Street of a million nights Nights of pain and tears And sorrows Nights that Up or down or sad or gay There's something in this whole Broadway That makes you tingle in and out That makes you get right up and shout God a day God a day Broadway rhythm It's got me Everybody dance 
Everybody dance. How long the gay white way in each merry cafe, orchestras play, taking your breath away. Necessary fade because <clears throat> we're due for an update on the news. But before we turn to that, by golly, that's really rather amazing. That is the adult voice. And a 12-year-old child yeah. in uh, October of 1935. And I believe today or yesterday was her, was her birthday. So it's serendipitous that we have her yeah. own. It wasn't. It, it was, she was an amazing theatrical presence, but it wasn't a happy life. There were moments in there, I'm sure, that were happy, there must have been but some there were a lot moments, of sad yeah. ones. Yeah. And we go to the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. We've had a fair amount of advertising tonight, because we have a fair amount of advertising every night, as does uh, all the rest of this station, of course, as do all the successful stations, except for those who belong to National Public Radio, where, in fact, the advertising it takes a different form. The, uh, the, you don't call them sponsors. You call them, what do they call them over there? Pledges? Uh, Pledge, yeah, well, the pledges is another thing. You, you take a week each year to stop the programming and just hustle for money from your listeners. Oh, if it were only one week each year. Is it more than one oh, week? Oh, it's one week yeah. each, or two weeks each season. But, but now we come to the coming of advertising in American radio. This is very important because radio started out, they didn't know how they're going to finance it. And, and one of the formats in, in the early 20s was the WBEZ, the NPR mm-hmm. stuff. We're going to just ask people to become members. Yeah. And another one, uh, night, as early as 1922, was an eight-minute commercial for a housing development in, uh, in uh, New York City. And that is what stuck, the idea that we're going to sell time to advertisers. It started out being simple. It'll be the Clico Club Eskimos. And they'll play music, and uh-huh. they're sponsored by Clico Club Soda Pop or, or Tonic. And then it became the A&P Gypsy, sponsored by A&P. And then gradually, you start getting paid commercials that are much more imaginative. Jeff Benny's way of introducing his uh, radio program always was Jell-O again. When it was Jell-O. When it was sponsored by Jell-O, yes. And uh, when he was sponsored by uh, Lucky Strike, I forget how he did it, but... Uh, uh, often, the, and, 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 and some of them would take on the sponsor. That was their way of, of, of bringing more yeah. attention and talking negatively about the sponsor. Kidding the sponsor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but here, I want to play on, on this cut here. This is from a General Mills commercial film in 1940, and they're talking about radio and radio advertising. And you can see how important radio is for communicating sales information, for getting consumers to buy because we're still in a depression in 1940 and if you don't buy if you don't spend money you don't generate jobs for people who supply you with the things you're going to buy and then they don't get paid so they can't buy anything and everything slows down so radio becomes its own stimulus in the sense that it is persuading people very imaginatively sometimes to go out and spend money to buy the product and this is a film about the company itself. About General Mills, yes. In magazines, in newspapers, and with vivid displays in thousands upon thousands of stores, General Mills constantly whets public appetites, builds public appreciation for all General Mills products. All these media, in which General Mills annually invests huge sums, are visual media, easily seen and readily appreciated by America's grocers and by American consumers. 
But this is no longer the whole story. Again, almost overnight, as if by magic, radio sets suddenly appeared in millions of living rooms. A new selling medium was born, a medium of unparalleled power, a medium that moved the impact of the world's most persuasive sales talk into the nation's living rooms. But because radio is heard rather than seen, this story, the story of General Mills Radio, has never yet been visualized. Once more, this time in radio advertising, General Mills got an early start. Gert! Oh, Gert! I can hear a man talking in Minneapolis. That's 20 miles away. Have you tried? We need the best breakfast food in the land. Have you tried? We need this whole wheat with all of the brands. One of the first General Mills radio programs went on the air in behalf of what was then another General Mills infant, Wheaties. The talent, like all radio talent those days, was amateur and sang cheerily for $24 a week. And Wheaties' sales in the Minneapolis area promptly mounted to one-half the national volume. General Mills had found a new force, a force to match the power of mass production. People, 130 million of them, are potential General Mills consumers. They are also the General Mills radio audience. But these people can't all be approached the same way. So General Mills has sorted them out according to sex, age, interests, buying influence, and listening habits. Customer number one is the woman. Objective of daytime radio advertising. She does up to 90% of the nation's food buying. From breakfast time until after school, the radio is hers to do with as she pleases. On the fate of ingredient products, GMKT, Soft to Silk, Bisquick, her voice is absolute. So long as the pie turns out well, no one ever asks what's in it. But purchases of ready-to-eat cereals are most often dictated in a childish treble. And from the close of school until dinner time, 10 million kiddies rule the radio. Evenings and Sundays, Dad takes over, and he pays the bills. So you better make it entertaining. Please him, and Pops will laugh to beat the band. The whole family likes beat the band. What a fine... And you say that one was from 1940. 1940. So it's really the classic period of, uh, of radio and of commercials on radio. And it is uh, a testament to the fact that this new medium is very powerful. Wheaties, mm-hmm. for instance, used to sponsor lots of baseball games uh, in local markets, as well as national programs like Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, where they were singing that song from, and uh, lots of soap operas, of course, for Bisquick and uh, other products uh, that they made. And they are still in business. In fact, they bought out Post, they bought out Ralston, yeah. and they dominate. Do they still have a Betty Crocker? Uh they changed. I think the, they, I they think, changed the person three or four times over the years. Well, a representative, but there never really was anybody. Yeah, named that's Bellinger. the point. Yeah, but uh, I'm sure they have somebody who represents uh, herself. But they there. still use the Betty Crocker uh, identity, so to speak. It's it's a valuable. You put together a montage of commercials from that period or from present? From, no, no, from the 1930s and 40s. Here it is. Waiter, waiter. Bill, did you ever see such poor service? I'm going to call the manager. Take it easy, Walt. What's mostly wrong is your grouch. I'm sorry, Phil, but my digestion is so upset. What you may need for your poor digestion is something that works after nature's own order. Try Carter's Little Liverpill. 
Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight, show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a luster cream shampoo. Only luster cream brings you K. Dumas' magic formula blend of secret ingredients plus gentle lanolin. Gives loveliness lather even in hardest water. Glamorizes your hair as you wash it. Luster cream. Not a soap, not a liquid, but a dainty cream shampoo. All Nash dealers will have the new Nash on display tomorrow. Say, that's the news I've been waiting for. You and a million others, Kurt. And what an eyeful they're going to get. That new Nash 600 and Nash Ambassador are two beautiful automobiles. You mean you've seen them? Seen them? I've driven them. And believe me, I never knew what driving meant before. Is the Nash 600 really big? Even bigger than you thought it was going to be. And how about economy? Does the new Nash 600 really deliver 25 to 30 miles on a gallon? Like a breeze, Kurt. I want to know... Now, look, you two, look. Why ask me about the new Nash 600? I could talk all night about that unitized body and coil springing, but it all adds up to a new thrill you can discover for yourselves. Today I drive my Pontiac to town in a few minutes to see the latest Paris gown. Is this new Pontiac equipped with freewheeling? Naturally. Has it synchro silent second? Of course. Is the body by Fisher? Certainly. Well, apparently Pontiac has all the latest developments of automotive engineering. Absolutely. That is why Pontiac is today the chief of values. L-A-V-A, L-A-V-A. Pepsi Cola hits the spot. Twelve full ounces, that's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel, too. Pepsi Cola is the drink for you. For better breakfast, it's Ralston. One, two, three. Shredded Ralston, the ready-to-eat bite-sized cereal. Regular Ralston and instant Ralston, the delicious hot cereal. Look for these whole grain cereals in the red and white checkerboard packages. For better breakfasts, it's Ralston. One, two, three. Something as simple as giving up coffee, perhaps. Although there are many people who can drink coffee without becoming nervous and jittery, there are many others who can't. So if you suspect coffee upset your nerves, switch to Postum. For Postum contains no caffeine or any other stimulant that could possibly set your nerves on edge. And it's an ideal mealtime beverage. Tempting to look at, fragrant to smell, and delicious to taste. What's more, Postum is very economical. Costing less than most other mealtime drinks. In fact, less than one half cent a cup. You can get it at any grocer's in two convenient forms. Postum cereal, the drink you make by boiling or percolating, and instant postum, made instantly in the cup. So if coffee's been making you nervous and jittery, start drinking postum regularly and see if those nerves of yours don't steady down. Nash automobiles, they disappeared a long time ago. That's one of the things you've got in there. One of the American Motors uh, little products. But uh, uh, that's very evocative. A number of those. Postum is still around, I guess. And it's very popular with uh, people who don't drink coffee, particularly Mormons. Uh huh. And it, it, it's sort of a, a, a coffee substitute. It's terrible tasting, <laughs> but it's made out of uh, <laughs> out of grain. I've never tasted it. It's the, you can find it at the yeah. supermarket. Well, speaking of commercials, let's pause and hear a few commercials. 
Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we come now to something quite special that I've never heard. I know you've dug this up, and you're probably very enthusiastic for this. This is Superman. We all remember Superman, but Superman put to kind of significant political use. After the war, we're talking about children's superhero now on the radio. After the war, where the enemy was racism, virulent racism, where the enemy was undemocratic, where all of our propaganda said freedom and equality and we're all about it, and when indeed we weren't, we were a racist nation, there begins within liberal circles a strong push for brotherhood, for doing away with prejudice, whether it's anti-Semitism against Asians, against African Americans, against uh, anybody of uh, uh, his, uh, Hispanic background. I remember a background. short film that Frank Sinatra did called The House I Live In, I mm-hmm. think. Wasn't that in the same mode? Absolutely. That was about a, 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 a Jewish, uh, supposedly this Jewish guy, had given blood, and it saved this Italian or this yeah, Irish kid's yeah. father. And he te- teaches these children brotherhood. And that's the, in that same spirit. Anti-communism will kill that. Uh, then if you're for change, you're a communist. But that's another story. What you have here is a typical story, and there were several in the Superman series that would run three mm-hmm. weeks or more every day of the week. The Clan of the Fiery Cross, June of 46. Here's a cut where Jimmy Olsen and Perry White are going to meet the Grand Scorpion, not the Grand Dragon of the KKK, but the Grand Scorpion of the Clan of the Fiery Cross. And their theme is very obviously, uh, this medium is now teaching strong political, contemporary, moral lessons. And now, the adventures of Superman. When the Clan of the Fiery Cross... A group of hate mongers whose credo was one race, one color, attacked Tommy Lee's star pitcher on Jimmy Olsen's Unity House baseball team because he is Chinese. Editor Perry White offered $5,000 reward to anyone who could identify the cowardly Klansman. That night, the men in sheets and hoods seized White and Jim and carried them to a hideout in the hills high above Metropolis. While Superman and the police searched for them, the gray-haired editor and the young reporter, their hands bound, were brought to a large cave before which burns a fiery cross, symbol of the clan, whose leaping flames eerily illuminate the cave where Matt Riggs, leader of the intolerant band, stands, garbed in a long robe embroidered with a blue scorpion. A peaked hood slit to reveal only his cold, sleepy eyes covers his head and face. Arms crossed on his chest, Riggs stares at White and Jim as they approach. Oh... You are the high mucky muck of this bunch, eh? I'm the Grand Scorpion of the Clan of the Fiery Cross. The Grand Rat, you mean? And a couple of other names I could think of, you... Chief, you... please. I advise you to control your temper, Mr. White, and your tongue. I don't want any advice from you, but I'll give you some. Release us at once, or by heaven, you and every one of your hooded hooligans will go to the electric chair. You're in no position to threaten us, but the time you're found in these hills, it'll be too late. Unless you come to terms first. Terms? Well, what do you mean? You've got to agree to stop your tax on us and your newspaper with your dirty lies. Stop standing up for those those yellow foreigners. They're not foreigners. They're darn good Americans. A whole lot better than you are. Quiet, you young punk. The Lees are American citizens, entitled to the same privileges as any of us. They're not Americans. They're foreigners. Their skin isn't white. So what? The Indians who were here before us are red-skinned. Does that make them foreigners? I'm not talking about the Indians. You are talking rot, and you know it. The nation was founded by foreigners and built by foreigners. Everyone here either came from another country or is descended from folks who did. 
Don't you ever read your history, you, 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 you stupid bigot. That's telling him, Chief. Now, look here, you two. I warn you, I'm not going to waste any more talk on you. Oh, good. Then you listen to me. I happen to love my country and what it stands for. Equal rights and privileges for all Americans, regardless of what church they choose to worship God in or what color skin God gave them. Now, you wait a minute. The United States was founded on that principle, and we've just fought a second world war to preserve it. You and others like you with your diseased minds want to tear down what we've built and fought to keep. But you can't do it. Blast you. I'll fight you to the last breath. And so will every other American worth his salt. We'll flush you and your hate-peddling goons out from behind your dirty sheets and clap you in jail where you belong. boy, Chief. Now, put that in your pipe and smoke it, Mr. Rat. You fools. Do you think that you or anyone else can stop the clan of the Fiery Cross? You bet we can. And we will. We stopped Hitler, mister. And his outfit sold the same baloney as yours. All right. I'll just show you how we'll deal with those who stand in the Klan's way. Well, that's that's fiery rhetoric as well. It is fiery rhetoric. And it, it really begins... Well, you could talk in general morality, westerns, cowboy shows, the good guy always wins, and little moral lessons. But in specifically drawing children into the politics of the contemporary world... World War II brought children into the war. Here's a cut from 1942 from the Hop Harrigan radio show. He's a, he's a teenage uh, flyer. And they're telling you how you can earn points in the junior salvage army by rounding up all this old scrap metal. Children being brought into the war effort here to get scrap metal. Okay, this is Hop Harrigan coming in. a week ago, young Eddie O'Brien came to this studio at Hop's request to tell you about the Junior Salvage Army and the drive for salvage that began on Monday of this week. Well, we received a letter from Eddie today in which he tells us of how the Junior Salvage Army drive is getting along. I'll read it to you. Dear Hop and Mr. Riggs and all the gang, I sure enjoyed being on your show last Friday. Mom says if you enjoy being a guest, you should always write to say thanks. So this is it. Thanks. Since I saw you last, I have become a sergeant in the Junior Salvage Army, and it's all on account of my grandma and Aunt Ellen are such great savers of old junk. I went through their attics and closets and cellars like a tornado and collected so much stuff that my pop had to load it in his car and drive me down to the schoolyard with it. Grandma and Aunt Ellen were so glad to have their attics and cellars cleaned that they gave me 25 cents each to buy war-saving stamps. Now I've got my eye on Uncle George's garage. He told me I could come over and look around on Saturday. Boy, there ought to be enough stuff lying around there to make me a lieutenant in the Junior Salvage Army because Uncle George saved all his old license plates and lots of old tires and tubes. I'll let you know how I make out. Very truly yours, Eddie O'Brien. Well, it certainly looks like Eddie's on his toes. And I hope all of you are working as hard as he is to collect all the metal and rubber salvage lying around useless in your homes and neighborhoods. Uncle Sam needs rubber and metals very much to make bullets and armament and tank treads and lots of other things. Give your own homes a thorough going over from attic to cellar. Don't overlook a thing your family can do without. Keep your eyes open when passing vacant lots on your way to school. Don't miss a single place where salvage may be found. Turn in lots of scrap to slap the Jap and the Nazis too. On the land, on the sea, and in the air. And now to our story. Now, I'm eager to get to the last 
play thing before we go to our uh, uh, newscast and then to our listeners. But we're opening the phone lines right now. The number, of course, 312-591-7200. Anything you want to ask, anything you want to remember, if you're old enough to remember radio in its classic days. But this last thing, uh, you title as Paving the Way for Television. Paving the Way. That was the same companies that made radio, made television. Not the movie industry, the broadcast industry. And here we'll hear... David Sarnoff of RCA talking about the coming of television in 1946 and then a poem from the Fred Allen Show. If you pledge to fight waste at home in cooperation with the United States government's great drive to produce more... Uh, A mistake, uh, either our mistake or a mistake in the booth. It's our mistake, probably. Actually, it's number 17, not 16. And time being what it is, I think we'll have to play it after we pause for an update on the news. For that... To the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. The man convicted of killing three members of singer Jennifer Hudson's family is looking to get a new trial. Attorneys for William Balfour say the Oscar winner's testimony in the trial was irrelevant and say her celebrity unfairly influenced the jury's decision to convict Balfour. The Chicago Teachers Union will announce tomorrow that more than the required number of members voted last week to authorize a teacher strike. Even with the authorization, a walkout couldn't happen until at least mid-August under a process laid out in state law. Seventeens ranging in age 13 to 16 were charged with felony mob action for attacks that sent at least two people to the hospital. It happened Saturday night in the 500 block of North State Street. A 16-year-old boy was shot and killed while standing on the front porch of his family's home. The medical examiner's office has identified the teen as Joseph Briggs. Briggs was shot Saturday when a gunman fired from a gray vehicle. No one else was struck. Sports, traffic, and weather next on WGN. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. In real radio, live radio, there's always uh, the danger of a blooper, of a mistake. And I made that mistake when I gave the wrong number to Aubrey Mumpower, our ace engineer. So we're going to, in just a moment, play that last clip. But first, uh, it is uh, appropriate to say once again that the lines are open. We await your calls. Some have uh, come in and are waiting, but there's room for yet others. 312-591-7200. And for that matter, email is, of course, also possible. The email address extension 720 at com. Back to General, as he called himself, General Sarnoff. Television is the future of radio. It means more than entertainment, for it will revolutionize communications. It can advance education, increase culture, and deliver a message to the human brain through the eye as well as the ear. In television as in broadcasting, however, the all-important challenge is to develop and to provide programs suitable for the home and to create a television service that will meet the needs of local communities and the nation. Look, Mr. Tiller, what about the monotony of radio comedy? I have the solution. Good. I'll write a jingle there. Take this down. Uh, What's the title? Farewell. Farewell. Farewell to you, old radio jokes. I can stand you no longer. California weather and airwick, Azusa and Cucamonga. <laughs> Who's on first? Jolson's age. How big is Durante's nose? Cantor with his five daughters. How sloppy are Crosby's clothes? Alan's alley, the mean widow kid. Sinatra looking so bony. Fibber McGee in his closet. Tell me, which twin has the Tony? Coming, mother. Listen, Greasy. At long last, I've made my decision. So farewell to you, old radio jokes. 
I'm turning to television. <laughs> and uh, so the country did. Uh, except Fred Allen. He tried and he yeah. didn't make it in television. It's one of the great classic figures in American radio. Some, one of the best. Mm-hmm. And quickly, to the telephones, 312-591-7200 is the number. And our first caller is Bob. Good evening, sir. You're on the air. Good evening. Uh, today we have TV stars, and if they do well, they graduate to movie stars. Was there a division between movie and radio stars and an evolution from one to the other? There really was. Uh, in the early days of radio, up until the mid-30s, uh, the studios would not let their stars go on the radio. They thought it would taint their lure if they'd get too common and, 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 and not as attractive. Uh, but when Luella Parsons became a regular on a Hollywood uh, hotel program, what's called Hollywood Hotel, which was a variety show, Luella Parsons, who was the Hearst newspaper film reviewer and gossip columnist, she was so powerful that the studios let their stars go on the air. And then soon you get people like Edward G. Robinson, a star of his own radio series, and, and others. So you have the migration from radio to the movie sometimes, Richard Widmark, for instance, uh, or uh, coming over slumming almost, if you want, people like uh, Eddie Robinson playing uh, in his detective program. Sir, we thank you for the call. We're going to move quickly to get into as many callers as we can in the short time still available, but there is room available on the board. If you want to pose a question or share a memory of classic radio, do by all means give us a call quickly at 312-591-7200. Get in there right now. We need a few more interesting calls, and you're an interesting person, so give us that ring. And here is the next one. That's Mike. You're on the air, sir. Hi, Milt. Wonderful show. The the clip you just played from the Superman radio series is probably the uh, formation or the reason the phrase truth, justice, and the American way came about. And and going along with your guest thing, yes, the same people who did the Superman radio series produced the first year of the George Reeves TV series in the 50s. And so that portion of the show when Superman is standing there, who fights for truth, justice, and the American way, that episode of the Burning Cross while received national awards from various agencies teaching children about tolerance, and that's been part of Superman's heritage, and it's kind of a joke, and it's kind of jingoism, but it's part of the Superman heritage. Actually, there were a couple of others with the same theme, uh, the Night of the White Carnation uh, and the Hate Mongers Organization. Those were two other multi-week serialized stories on Superman. So they took this brotherhood thing very, very seriously. Yes, they did. Very interesting. Thank you, sir, for the call. You're welcome. Uh, now, I need another, I need a few more good calls. Get in there quickly and uh, give the old man your proper uh, contribution by way of your thought, uh, whether you have something to say or something to ask. 312-591-7200. And get in there right now if you want to be heard at all. And we'll go next to Janet. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi, Milt, and uh, thank you for your show tonight. I uh, was telling your producer that I'm going to show my ignorance, but I feel that FM radio didn't come into its own till about the uh, early 70s. FM, you and say, yes. FM. Mm-hmm. And did they start up together, or was that an offshoot, or 
you know, why do we have AM and FM? Well, you had FM because you uh, can get a much better signal and hear, particularly for the playing of music, it is a much better uh, uh, transmission. But it was invented by a man named Armstrong in the mid-1930s, and David Sarnoff in particular, and the broadcast industry uh, in general, they were deathly afraid of FM because they had such an investment on AM. They went to court. They tied this poor Armstrong up so badly. Uh, If I remember correctly, he may have committed suicide. Uh, And we don't uh, find FM really emerging until the... uh, Mid fifties, when Elf, when the AM people have now shifted their energies toward television, they don't care anymore about FM. So FM it starts to become more available, and more stations appear on it. And then in the age of rock and roll with long eight minute long recordings that no commercial station would ever play, FM becomes sort of an underground uh, communications uh, uh, spectrum in the nineteen sixties and into the seventies. Oh, I see. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you, ma'am, for the call. And we'll pause for a last quick round of commercials and then right back to the phones and some email. For phones, 312-591-7200. For email, extension 720 at com. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we'll go right back to the phones for your calls with a question or comment. To J. Fred McDonald, 312-591-7200. George is next up. Good evening. Good evening, Milt. Great show again. Thank you, uh, sir. Quick comment. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, uh, a lot of commercials, I used to see Radio Free Europe. Uh, and I'm thinking that uh, democracy probably owes a lot to radio on keeping that message of democracy alive over in Europe during the Cold War. That's a very interesting point. Well, you had RFE, you had... Um the Voice of America, which was the U.S. government outfit. You had uh, the CIA ran one uh, of these uh, anti-communist broadcast things. They had the equivalent uh, in in China, too, going across the bamboo curtain, not the iron curtain. And they were in the, in the language uh, broadcasting uh, into the Soviet-dominated areas primarily uh, for people that had radio sets that weren't being jammed by the uh, host country. Uh, they have Radio Marti right now, and for years they've been broadcasting into Cuba, but nobody ever hears it because the Cuban government jams the signal. Uh, but they're still out there broadcasting, uh, and uh, it was, uh, uh, I'm sure it helped uh, raise the spirits of some people, uh, those who uh, were fortunate enough to hear it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Interesting point indeed. And next up, Mike. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, for a long time, I've been listening to uh, like a Jack Benny and the Six Shooter just for entertainment purposes. But okay. recently, I started listening to a show called Words at War, uh-huh. which is taking publications and doing like a little radio play on them. But it really gives a good perspective from that from a U.S. side of World War II. But now, for- that's a program that's currently on the air, is it? No, it's from no, the 1940s, no. 1945. It's an old thing. But you, you, but you've got your hands-on copies of it. Yes, on the internet, I was able to get copies uh-huh. of it. Um, but it really gives a good perspective of World War II from uh, like a Japanese perspective, a Chinese perspective. Really, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real interesting. Yeah, I, as, as I recall, I may be wrong, but I think that was a, a U.S. government program. The U.S. government in the early '40s produced. Um, 
its own programs. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. They did one called Freedom's People, which is a 13-part, uh, 13 half-hour shows about uh, uh, the Negro in America. And they would have on, you know, big names in town, Count Basie, uh, uh, Lionel Hampton, Paul Robeson, uh, uh, major African-American cultural uh uh, giants would be on there. And uh, they did other ones on education. They did one on famous American women uh, promoting uh, the equality of women uh, about 1941 or 42. So uh, the, they don't do that anymore. Uh, but uh, it was an interesting uh, period, and particularly around the war, where yeah. government became a, a producer. Sir, thank you for the call. You know, this call puts me to, uh, to mind <clears throat> something very basic that I should have asked you earlier. Uh, old-time radio is a genre which is very much available on the Internet and through various commercial suppliers. Uh, if people want to really get the full quality of, quote, old-time radio, radio of the 30s and 40s, where do they go? Go to Google and put up OTR. Just that. OTR is good enough, old-time Correct. radio, and uh, download. That's the important word. You know, if you want to buy them, and you'll find lots of people selling sets, uh, but they're all public domain, and and if you get them, you can put them on a DVD and sell them yourself. But uh, go to put the word download or listen old time radio, and you'll see lots of places to hear these shows. And you know that gives me occasion to say to our regular listeners that ours is not old time radio, but it's been around for a long time. WGN? No, I mean this particular oh. program, and on our website. Uh, which is wgnradio.com forward slash extension 720. We put up all the immediately uh, completed programs. This will be up tomorrow afternoon. It runs for a week on the front page, then it goes to a, a back page, but it's there more or less permanently. But we've also put up many programs which we're calling extension 720 classics. I'm just looking at uh, the page right now. Uh, Carl Sagan, Howard Cosell, Mayor Harold Washington, uh, Mayor Jane Byrne, uh, Carl Lewis, the great track man, Kirk Douglas, Charlton Heston. I'm just reading the names of the guests. Little more. Henry Kissinger, uh, a panel on the Vietnam War with three veterans of that war. Uh, Sir David Attenborough, the great uh, sort of... Uh, uh, Anthropologist. Anthrop- well, he's, he's uh, <clears throat> uh, an animal specialist with great uh, films about animals and so on. And uh, Pete Hamill, a fine writer. Sir Nicholas Henderson, former British ambassador to the United States. Mike Wallace. We put this up only a week after Mike's recent uh, uh, departure. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. Uh, on That's the front page. On the back pages, much, much more. Hundreds of such programs. And I say, as I did say, you get them by going to extension, rather to wgnradio.com forward slash extension 720. And we go back to the phones at uh, 312-591-7200. Barbara is next. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Milt and Fred. Uh, The song that you heard that Tommy Dorsey played was Mm -hmm. March of the Toys by Victor Herbert. Thank you so much. Wonderful. I knew I recognized it as something in the more or less classic (laughs) repertoire, but I didn't know what it was. And it led me to a question. Is it not the case that in the early 1940s there was some kind of labor dispute between the union and the broadcast networks and they could not play current songs on network radio? I think that that's maybe when Freddie Martin recorded those Tchaikovsky things. And and Glenn Miller had to use My Isle of Golden Dreams or something like that instead of his song. 
That's correctly remembered. And I now remember in that context, it was ASCAP who were making the trouble. It was ASCAP, and uh, they wanted more money for... American Society of... Composers, authors, and publishers. I suppose. There were several, there were about three different ASCAP uh, problems in the (laughs) 1940s, and I think that was the early one about not being able to play current songs on Mm -hmm. either live live radio or or network radio. But that had a major, a major cultural shift. They went to South America where ASCAP didn't have any authority, and they brought up all those sambas and rumbas and Uh rongas. And the whole Latin craze of the mid to the late 40s is because of ASCAP. That's wonderful. They also rediscovered Stephen Foster, as I remember. (laughs) But you also brought in people like Desi Arnaz, Javier Cugat, uh, and and other (laughs) Latin bandmen. Carmen Carmen Miranda. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. A very interesting contribution indeed. And we go quickly to the next, that being Kathy, who joins us at WGN Radio. Good evening. Good evening, Milt. Good evening, Fred. I'm a huge fan of old-time radio, so I'm enjoying this uh, very much. One of your callers asked uh, where they could get old-time radio or listen to it. So I just wanted to remind everybody about the Chuck Shaden Show. Those were the days which... Uh, was on WNIB for, I don't know, 20 years, I think, or more. And it's still on the College of DuPage radio station. Does Chuck think... does Chuck Shaden still do it? Uh, yes, apparently. I oh, just wonderful. Went... I was uh, at Blues Fest today, and the College of DuPage station uh, had a booth. And I asked them, they said, yes, it's still on Saturdays from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., just like it always was. Now, it's, I'm in Rogers Park. It's a little hard to get up here, but, um, you know, if you live in a different part of the city or the suburbs, it might not be too bad. I think it's at 90.9 on the AM dial, mm-hmm. I believe. Correct. Well, Chuck did that for many years. I, I wonder if those are still live broadcasts that he's putting together or whether these are replays. Or somebody well, else is doing I the show. I assume they're live. They didn't say that they were um, no. replays. I assume they're yeah. live. Well, that's great. <clears throat> and thank you very much for telling us about it. You're welcome. You have a good evening. And we'll go to the next caller. That next caller being, uh, let me see, uh, is Kerry, who joins us. No, no, it's not Kerry. Uh, it must be, yes, now it is Kerry. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, well, uh, that organization is American Society of Composers and Performers, but what I would like to ask for is, uh, a lot of that stuff, you said, so that, uh, that stuff is all in public domain now, and I believe that a lot of that stuff is still in copyright, and I wonder if somebody could tell us how long the copyright runs on those things, because honestly, some of us, including me, are very reluctant to download and, and make copies and pass around copies or other things that are available on the Internet uh, from old-time radio or other sources, because uh, I honestly don't know where they're in copyright. Well, we're going to give you an answer, so we're going to plug out, because though you are certainly very familiar with electronic communication. You don't have a phone that uh, one can stand for much longer. Uh, technically, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you want to get all song, everything from 1923 forward is in the, in the realm of music is, is renewed in copyright. The copyright law runs about 
it's safe to say, 100 years. Uh, it all was supposed to lapse, but then Disney and, uh, and the song publishing industry went to Congress, and they got Congress to extend it and extend it. Mickey Mouse uh, and Steamboat Willie should have been uh, public domain years ago, but you know, I think it's t- 2020 it's going to be in the public domain unless, of course, the uh, uh, Disney uh, buys another extension. But the songs themselves, the theme music, all, if you want to get technical, is all uh, in copyright. And, but it's such a low priority compared to ripping off Madonna uh, songs or the Beatles that uh, it, it's practically usable. So I would say enjoy life, download them, and uh, play them at home to your heart's content. And we'll go to Pamela as the next caller. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello, hello. Going hello? On? Yes, you're on the air. Please. Hi, I'm so sorry. I'm going to turn my off there. Very good. Uh, good evening, Milt. Always a pleasure. This is Pamela calling from Racine. Yes, ma'am. Go and, ahead, please. And uh, about three years ago, on another radio station in town, uh, Carla Murray does this thing on Saturday nights where it's like four hours long and they also do two consecutive Twilight Zone episodes. Mm-hmm. Well, I happened to have been recovering from back surgery and was on my own a lot. And I found that it was fascinating and it was something you could do by yourself. Um, the stories were interesting um, and then from there, you just... Yeah, well, I know about that. As a matter of fact, we're very short on time, and your phone connection isn't too good. I don't know what it is about the last few callers uh, with uh, r- rather defective phones. That used to be ca- uh, carried, that is the replays of, um, of that particular program, used to be carried on this station. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. One, I mean, she was recovering from back surgery, but blind people are still longtime fans sure. of, of old-time radio. What do you have to say as we close, with only about two minutes left, about the way in which radio has changed? Heavens. Well, what has happened is... When television took over, that changed the whole name of the game for radio. Right. In, ni- in 1952, I think there was something like maybe 900 stations, almost all of them network-affiliated. Mm-hmm. Today, there are probably 10,000 stations, 10-watt stations on universities. Uh, the, the air is filled with radio stations. And so we don't have broadcasting anymore. We have narrow casting. And in the age of narrow casting... Except for a few of the, the giant stations like this. Uh, one, yeah, exactly. Uh, AM giant stations. Yeah. But for the most part, you have to have a niche. You have to have something that's different. And with more and more comp- com- competition, you get more and more outrageousness. Out, and you know that's how to get pay- attention. Back in, in the old days of vaudeville, you'd drop your trousers. If your jokes weren't going anywhere, pull your pants down. The audience thought that was hilarious. So now they pull their civilized pants down, as it were, verbally, and we get what they call the shock jocks. And uh, they're not just people talking. They're not just people playing music. They're doing lewd. Uh, They're doing crude, and crude gains attention, particularly among the immature. Then you've got the the movement of radio out, out into the serious radio and whatever, where you, now we have subscription radio. And you've got internet radio growing very, very rapidly. Absolutely. Um, we are just about out of time. <clears throat> uh, I've mentioned two of your books. You've got four or five books, at least, focused on broadcast history. 
Don't Touch That Dial is radio. Blacks and White TV is a history of African Americans in television. Uh, Who Shot the Sheriff is a history of the Western. TV and the Red Menace is about uh, television and Vietnam. Don't touch... I forget them myself. (laughs) Well, right now you're busy working on your new novel, as a matter of fact. Our guest has been Fred McDonald, a treasured old friend. And uh, I thank you very much for joining us and for putting together this wonderful playlist as well. You, You brought all of this in from home tonight. And we will be back again tomorrow night. Something quite interesting, I think. Stephen Prothero has been our guest before. He's a professor of religion at Boston University. He's got a new book titled The American Bible, How Our Words Unite, Divide, and uh, Define a Nation. Uh, What he calls the Bible is really great American texts of all sorts. We'll be talking about those with him and hearing excerpts from some of them tomorrow night from 10 to midnight. Until then, thanks to all for listening and a most cordial good night.